sixth of seven shows on the Narnia Chronicles. This one is on the Magician's Nephew book. I'm William O'Flaherty, the producer and director of the show. If you haven't already, be sure to catch the other programs that cover the stories by visiting NarniaCast.com. NarniaCast.com is a one-stop place for all broadcasting-related things on Narnia. NarniaCast.com is a featured partner site on the Middle Earth Network. I run another feature partner site you might want to consider called EssentialCSLewis.com. It features a variety of information on C.S. Lewis, including a daily fact, quote, and quiz on him, as well as dozens of interviews, mostly with authors on books related to Lewis. Two things to note before going to the original recording, which was actually done on June 5, 2013. First, our guest, Dr. Lewis Marcos, was only available by phone, and so coordinating a phone call and Skype means some aspects of the audio quality will not be as good. Also, one of our regular co-hosts, Paul Martin, wasn't able to join us to chat about the magician's nephew. Sharing co-hosting duties with me is Dr. Crystal Hurd. She is an educator and researcher from Virginia, currently doing research on the role of artists as leaders. Welcome back to the Narnia podcast here on Magician's Nephew, Crystal. Great to be of assistance, William. And we have our special guest today is Dr. Lewis Marcos. He is an author of many books on C.S. Lewis and some other topics, and professor of English and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. Welcome to this podcast, Lou. Great to be here, William. Lou, would you mind sharing for someone who maybe is hasn't yet read any of the books why you believe the best way to, to start out with is reading the publication order. Could you comment about that first? Thank you for asking that question, William, because this is a passion of mine and most people that really care about Lewis. I would go so far to say as the decision to reorder the Chronicles of Narnia is the worst publishing decision since Gutenberg. All right, Lewis wrote them in the original order that they were originally published, starting with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, then Prince Caspian, then Voyage of the Dawn Treader, then The Silver Chair, then The Horse and His Boy, and then sixth came Magician's Nephew, and finally The Last Battle. But later in his life, he did a lot of writing back and forth, as you know, William, with children. You can buy a whole book, Letters to Children, by C.S. Lewis. And one child suggested it might be interesting to read the Chronicles of Narnia in the order of Narnian chronology. You see, because Magician's Nephew tells the story of how Narnia was created, it's actually the first in terms of Narnian chronology. Then Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, then The Horse and His Boy, which was originally fifth, because The Horse and His Boy takes place simultaneous with the last chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe during the Golden Age when the four Pevensey children were the kings and queens of Narnia, that is now put third, and then the others follow. Now, Lewis wrote back and said, yes, that would be interesting. I personally think he was just buttering up the kid and being nice to him. I have a lot of students that make silly comments, and I say, well, that's nice. I don't tell them it's stupid. But anyway, somebody thought it would be a great idea, and Lewis said, wouldn't it be interesting to do it? But for the last 20 years or so, William, the only way that the Chronicles of Narnia are published is in the order of Narnian chronology, beginning with Magician's Nephew. And if you get the book, this kind of upsets me, the book doesn't explain to you. There's only one little line that says, this is in the order Lewis preferred, which is, which is debatable anyway. The only way you can tell the real order is by looking at the copyright dates on the copyright page. Now, why, am I, why is this so important? Uh, to be honest, William, once you've 
order you want. But the first time you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you must begin with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That is the gospel story of Narnia. Just think about it. It takes three trips before all the Pevensey children are in Narnia. I mean, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe slowly brings you in. And the best way to ask this is, if you had a friend who just became a Christian and said, William, I want to start reading the Bible. How should I read it? You would not tell the guy, begin in Genesis and go straight through. You would tell them to begin with one of the Gospels. So you need to begin there. But also, just as important, the great joy of reading The Magician's Nephew, especially the first time you read it, is that in reading it, you discover the origin of all these things you've read about before. If you read The Magician's Nephew first, you've lost the joy of recognition. And if you read it carefully, Lewis is taking for granted that his readers know who this lion is that's singing Narnia into being. He even begins by, it's just, it's, it's just a shame because one of the reasons I love The Magician's Nephew is after you've read five chronicles, you have all these questions, where did it start from, where did it begin? And then this wonderful book comes along that gives you the full backstory. And again, another just real quick thing that's wonderful about The Magician's Nephew is that in earlier books, the ones Lewis wrote earlier, it is told to us again and again that no one ever learns what might have happened. That comes up in Voyage of the Dawn Treader and again in, uh, in Horson's Boy, a few of the different ones. No one's ever told what would have happened. But when you get to The Magician's Nephew, at the end of that book, Diggory is told what would have happened if he'd made the wrong choice. Now, in all the earlier books, it's always the kids make a wrong choice, and they never find out what would have happened had they made a right choice. But suddenly here, it's almost as if Aslan has broken his rule, probably because Diggory's done the right thing. So there's little things, too, that surprise and shock you in a much stronger way if you hold off until book number six. And then, of course, to read Magician's Nephew followed directly by Last Battle is like jumping from Genesis to Revelation. So many, many reasons for this. And I'll end here. I could go on forever, but I'll end here, William, by just reminding people that when they started making the movies, isn't it interesting they decided to follow the original order? Now it's time for our first segment, The Story Behind the Story. Lou will be providing some background information about things that led up to Lewis writing The Magician's Nephew. So, Lou, what can you tell us? Well, one of the interesting things about Magician's Nephew is that he started writing it fairly early, not that long after writing Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He started sketching out ideas, and then he stopped and went back and wrote the other books. So it's kind of interesting. It's almost like, no, no, I'm not, maybe I'm not ready yet to write this story. But it's one that was clearly percolating in his mind. One of the reasons why this is my favorite book, and a lot of people would share this, is it's probably his, well it is, his most personal of the Chronicles of Narnia. Because at the center of this book is a boy whose mother is dying. And they don't quite say it's cancer, but it's, it's implied that it's cancer. Of course, Lewis was only nine years old, not quite ten, when his mother died of cancer. And Diggory is about the same age. He appears to be nine or ten years old. And of course, in The Magician's Nephew, Diggory, the boy, gets to do what young Jack Lewis, C.S. Lewis, couldn't do, and that was find a magic apple to save his mother. So it, 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 the, 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 the pathos, I find, of this book is very powerful. I mean, Lewis knows 
for the short summary of the story. So, spoiler alert, if you haven't read The Magician's Nephew, or you don't want to hear an overview of the entire story, then skip ahead about four minutes for the favorite character's portion of the show. As always, Crystal will be doing this, and you can find her online at crystalherd.com. Crystal is spelled the traditional way, and her last name is H-U-R-D. You can find a direct link to her site and other places mentioned in the show notes at narniacast.com. With that out of the way, Crystal, you can take it away with the story summary. The Magician's Nephew begins in London with a little girl named Polly Plummer. Polly sees a neighbor, boy, peeking over the fence and discovers that his name is Diggory. Diggory is upset because his father's in India, his mother is very ill, and he's living with his strange aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Ketterly. After exploring the house, they find Uncle Ketterly, called Uncle Andrew, in an upstairs room. He has four rings, two gold and two green, uh, and reveals that he has been practicing magic. The yellow rings transport an individual into another world, while the green ring ensures return. Polly touches the yellow ring and vanishes. Diggory then takes the other ring to follow Polly and protect her. Diggory and Polly now find themselves in the wood between the worlds. There are dozens of pools located there, each an entrance into a different universe. The children dive into one of these pools and ends up in a place called Charn. In a ruined palace, Diggory and Polly find royalty who are frozen on their thrones. The two come upon a bell and a hammer with these words inscribed on a nearby pillar. Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad... What would have followed if you had? Although Polly is cautious, Diggory cannot conquer his curiosity and rings the bell. Suddenly, the vibrating note becomes a great thunder, and the palace partially collapses. One of the sleeping figures awakens. Her name is Jadis. She describes a great conflict which she claims was caused by her sister. Although he had promised not to utilize magic in battle, Jadis claims that her army was nearly exhausted, and when Jadis came face to face with her sister, she spoke the deplorable word, which eliminated everyone but Jadis. 
she placed herself in a deep sleep, one that would only be broken by the ringing of the bell. The children sense that Jadis is dangerous and attempt to flee. However, she grabs hold of the children as they escape and is transported back to England. In England, Jadis interrogates Uncle Andrew and insists to be returned to her world. She helps herself to some jewels in a local shop and tries to steal a cab. Just as trouble is escalating, Polly and Diggory use the rings to transport the whole party back into another world, a different world than Charn. Jadis, the cabbie, the horse, and Uncle Andrew are all with the children. The party arrives confused, but then they hear a sweet voice singing and Narnia begins to take form. Finally, they meet the singer and creator, a large, shaggy lion named Aslan. Jadis throws an iron bar at Aslan, one she acquired in London. But Aslan remains unharmed. This bar becomes the Great Lantern of Lantern Waste, where Lucy first meets Mr. Tumnus in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uncle Andrew begins to feel stronger and wishes to exploit Narnia. Meanwhile, they look on as Aslan visits with various animals. Strawberry, the horse from London, joins the Narnian beasts. Although Aslan gives many animals the ability to speak, including Strawberry, Uncle Andrew cannot understand them. Aslan creates a hierarchy among the animals and makes the cabbie, Frank, and his wife, Helen, the first king and queen of Narnia. Diggory must atone for introducing evil, i.e. bringing the witch, to Narnia. He is commanded to bring an apple from a garden high on a mountaintop and plant it in Narnia. Strawberry, now a flying horse named Fledge, will assist Diggory on his quest. When Diggory arrives at the garden, he is tempted to eat the apple by Jadis or to steal an apple to heal his mother. Jadis has eaten an apple and has achieved immortality, but will discover only misery. Diggory resists the witch's temptation, and once he returns to Aslan, is given permission to carry the apple home to help his mother. They return to London, where the apple restores the health of Diggory's mother. The apple's core and the magic rings are buried in the backyard, where the tree will eventually blossom. Years later, a storm will damage the tree, and it will be used to build a wardrobe. Hence the wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Diggory is the professor, Professor Kirk from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the conclusion, Diggory and Polly remain lifelong friends. Now it's time for our segment dealing with the favorite characters within The Magician's Nephew. We'll go back to Dr. Lewis Marcos for his favorite characters, and then we're going to have Crystal share about hers, and I'll share mine. So, Blue, take it away. Now, one of the interesting things about Magician's Nephew is it doesn't have one of those super memorable characters like Reepicheep or Puddleglum, but it does have powerful characters. I mean, in one sense, I'm drawn towards the villains, but let me talk about the ones I like. I mean, it's got some of the most interesting villains, but I really like the way that Lewis handles the friendship between Diggory and Polly. Now, of course, it's going to make people think of the earlier friendship between Eustace and Jill in the silver chair, but I really like the way uh, that, that Lewis develops the character of Diggory. I mean, he puts this child hero through a lot. I mean, this boy has to make one of the most difficult decisions in literature, certainly in children's literature, and that is he has the chance to disobey Aslan, steal a magic apple that he thinks at least he'll bring home and can heal his mother from dying. And this boy has to make this terrible decision. I also like the way he is developed 
because Lewis, again, to me, the sort of psychology, if you want to call it, is a little bit deeper with Diggory than so. And by the way, just another reason why you want to read Narnia in the original order is that the horse and his boy, the magician's nephew, and last battle are all much more complicated psychologically and thematically uh, than the earlier books. So it, they do get richer. I don't think they're greater, per se, but they get richer. And one of the richnesses of this is that the villain of the piece, or one of the two villains, is Uncle Andrew, the, uh, the uncle of Diggory. And he is a magician who's kind of given over to the black arts, if you will, and, and curiosity and stuff. And what's brilliant about this is that Diggory, of course, is very angry at his uncle for the manipulative things he does. But there are a couple places in the book where we see that Diggory has it within him to be another Uncle Andrew. He's got a curiosity that almost goes bad. In fact, the evil witch is brought into Narnia precisely because Diggory, the boy, is tempted by forbidden knowledge. Now, the good thing about this is we see his capacity for sin, like we do with Edmund, for instance, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but we also see the potential for redemption. And the redemption includes a kind of penance where he is not only allowed to make it good in terms of confession, but he's allowed to make it good in doing what has to be done to help Narnia defend itself against the witch that he's brought into Narnia. So, again, and then when you contrast him with, with Polly, I don't have time to go into this, but when you contrast him with Polly, there, there, there's a wonderful relationship where at times they're very angry and bickering with each other. Later on, they're able to forgive each other and work together. Again, there's, there's a maturity level there that almost belies the young age of, 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 of our two heroes, uh, Polly and Diggory. All right, uh, Crystal, can you tell us who are your favorite characters from The Magician's Nephew? I actually enjoyed Diggory the most, um, and it is also more of an autobiographical element um, for me. I actually read the Narnia stories later in life, actually just a few years ago, and um, while I was reading this book, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she had just been diagnosed while I was reading the book. So it was riveting, and it's powerful um, to read about this child who is, you know, grieving his mother's illness. Um, and I felt like I was, you know, experiencing a parallel journey. Um, and so it was um, and it, that whole scene where, um, where Aslan weeps for Diggory because Diggory is so grief-stricken is, was powerful for me. It had me weeping too um when i when i finished the book it was um i just felt a kinship with diggory and with lewis and although my mother um did survive and she's cancer free now um which is awesome it was um it was that journey that i I took with diggory and and it was almost like god was speaking through aslan and saying you know she'll be okay you know because i wanted that narnian apple as much as diggory did um and so it was uh for me it was personally moving um, to read that because I was experiencing something very similar to Diggory. All right, and uh, for me, uh, it seems like uh, we uh, all have the same favorite character, and as uh, Lou is mentioning, in terms of main characters, there, there's not a whole lot of main characters in terms of on the good side. There's a um, uh, just a, a small handful, and Diggory does, of course, um, shine, and, and he was the one that, when I, when I first read, which was um, just after high school, so it wasn't uh, too late uh, as an adult, but um, it was uh, beyond uh, childhood. And I, and I did enjoy, too, the complexity of, of things that he struggled with. Here you have someone that did something which caused um, 
some terrible things to happen. And then he had to admit that. And, uh, you know, because he's the one that brought evil into Narnia. And yet he did learn a lot. And then he was able to make some other decisions better. So uh, for me, it's spoken in terms of there may be times to where in your own life that you may do things that aren't the wisest, but there will be further opportunities that you, you know, you'll have another fork in the road and you'll have another opportunity to make a better decision. And we see that he does. I don't think I've noted it yet, though we don't hope to discuss everything possible, obviously, about the magician's nephew. But in terms of just picking and choosing, um, it's kind of, we hope to encourage you to read the book again or read it for the first time if you have yet to do that by our discussion. One of the things that I thought would be interesting, and we do in each of our segments, is to consider some unique aspects to this particular story. Before I have Lou do that, uh, Lou, you've come out with a book not that long ago, just last year in 2012, and then just before that, that uh, has some things dealing with uh, Narnia. I'm thinking of uh, Restoring Beauty, and then the one from just last year was On the Shoulder of Hobbits, which also dealt with Narnia. Tell us briefly about those first before going into the unique to this story aspect. The one that's a little bit older is called Restoring Beauty, the Good, the True, and the Beautiful in the writings of C.S. Lewis, and it deals Half of it deals with this fiction, the arts, and the other half deals with education. And so I actually deal with Lewis's more academic work, uh, the preface Paradise Lost, the discarded image, the allegory of love, uh, and, and I try to keep a balance between the two. And what I try to show is that Lewis was a great defender of beauty in an age that was becoming increasingly ugly and even embracing ugliness. And so Lewis is depicted as a sort of knight and one of the chapters that would, would interest listeners to this uh, radio thing is uh, a long chapter on the Chronicles of Narnia and how Lewis fleshes out the nature of good and evil uh, and talking about different characters that way. The second book, which just came out in the fall, is called On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis, and it is a sort of comparative study of the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. And it, this is kind of hard to believe, William, but there actually are not very many books at all out there that compare the two, which seem odd. You'd think that would be kind of a no-brainer. But I was glad I had a niche in there. And uh, it's broken into four sections. The first section talks about the nature of the road, being on the road, coming to the end of the road. Again, in every chapter's Narnia and Lord of the Rings, back and forth. Uh, The second part is on the four classical virtues of courage, wisdom, self-control, and justice is the fourth one. And then the third section is on what's called the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, to which I add friendship, which Lewis and Tolkien were great advocates for. And then finally, uh, the last section is on the nature of evil. And and there I speak quite a bit about both Magician's Nephew and uh, The Last Battle because of their intense understanding of the nature of evil. There are a, a number of things that are actually unique to The Magician's Nephew. First, one of them that people don't really notice is that a lot more time is spent in our world in The Magician's Nephew than almost any of the other novels, a little bit in line the Witch in the Wardrobe. We get a real neat sense of sort of late Victorian London, uh, and basically the period when C.S. Lewis himself was growing up. He was born in 1898, so late Victorian, and what we call the uh, Edwardian age. And so that's a lot of fun. There's actually, I think, a lot more comedy in some ways in Magician's Nephew in those scenes. That's a lot of fun. Of 
course, what really sets it apart is that The Magician's Nephew is the Genesis story of the Narnian Bible, if you will. And what's beautiful is we get to witness the birth of Narnia. And Narnia is born out of the head of Aslan. And it's not something that Aslan thinks. It's something that Aslan sings. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Lewis was influenced here, not only by the sons of heaven singing, as it says in the book of Job, but by the fact that Tolkien in the Silmarillion, his Middle Earth, which actually is the Earth, but Middle Earth is sung into being by Iluvatar, which is the, the, the figure of God in Tolkien. Now, the Silmarillion was not published until after Tolkien died by his son, but Lewis was the, probably the first fan of the Silmarillion, heard parts of it read out loud, so he was very familiar with this idea uh, of, of the, the power of song and of music. And so it's wonderful because as Aslan sings, everything grows around it. And as the tune changes, the kind of vegetation that, that, that comes up changes. I mean, it's literally moving with the symphony and the ups and downs. And we get to witness that in, in such a beautiful way. Also, we may talk about this later, uh, there is also um, a much more deep understanding of the nature of evil here. Now, of course, the nature of evil comes up in all of the books, but what makes this book, Magician's Nephew, unique to me is that Lewis is not just dealing with evil in the generic sense. He's dealing very much with Nietzsche and Nietzsche's ideas. And so this book very directly answers some of the you know issues of the day, almost in the same way that Brothers Karamazov and, 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 uh, uh, Capital, and, and, and Crime and Punishment do by Dostoevsky. I mean, obviously, this is a children's book. But Lewis is really, in, he even makes a reference in The Magician's Nephew to the atom bomb, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and so, again, to me, there's more direct reference to problems in the world in this book than the other ones. And now it's time for the largest segment of this podcast series, and that is the discussion, or general discussions, where we explore uh, a hodgepodge, you might say, of questions as noted earlier, we're not hoping to discuss every aspect of The Magician's Nephew. Hopefully maybe bringing out a few aspects that you haven't thought about, as in the earlier one about the unique to this story. Uh, Lou was bringing out something that I thought, oh yeah, that's very true. I hadn't thought about that, but that, no, that's an interesting point. Hopefully in this next segment here with our discussion, we'll bring up some interesting things for you to consider. First question uh, we want to consider is, Something that Dr. Marcus was uh, was noting here, and that is about uh, Aslan singing Narnia into being and the different responses to his song. Lou, can you kick us off with that? This, to me, again, the, the insight in Magician's Nephew, spiritual, emotional, is it, just intellectual. It's really amazing. I mean, it's not a children's book in the, in the simple sense of the word. When Aslan sings creation into being, the children, Diggory and Polly. There is a cabbie, but of course the cab he draws is a horse-drawn cabbage because we're talking about carriage, we're talking about 1900. So the cabbie, Frank, and his horse, Strawberry, when they hear the music, it is the most beautiful song they've ever heard. They just stop in awe. Even the horse is in awe. It feels like it's you know, back in its home eating a cube of sugar. I mean, they're moved to tears by it. But the evil characters... Uncle Andrew, who uses witchcraft, and Jadis, who is an evil queen, an evil witch, when 
same music, they hid it. Lewis says if they could have crawled into a ditch and covered themselves up, they would have done it. When Jadis, the, the evil queen, hears it, she, it, Lewis says she would have destroyed that world and all worlds to stop that singing. It, it, the best way to, to compare this to is the light of Christ. When the light of Christ shines in, those who are in Christ are illuminated, filled with warmth, and filled with love. But if you are outside, that same light exposes. Right? The, the, the word of God is like a two-edged sword, sharper, cutting to bone and marrow. Right? And, and so what is good news to one person is bad news to another. So the evil characters cannot enjoy the music. We don't have time to go into detail, but there's a similar scene in the last battle where these evil dwarves are in basically Eden, but all they see is they're in a terrible little no smelly stable, and when Aslan tries to feed them a rich feast, they think they're eating turnips and rotten hay. And this is a very important concept that Lewis de develops even more in Screwtape and even more in The Great Divorce, and that is, to a certain extent, we build our own hell. Now, Lewis believed in literal hell, but to a certain extent, in refusing grace, we put ourselves into darkness. We're like the dwarves, Aslan says, are so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Let me end by one more, one more quote of scripture. In the, what we call the prologue to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, it says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Also translated, the darkness has not comprehended it. Evil is not only unable to conquer good, evil cannot even understand good. William, do you understand the real reason why Frodo and Sam are able to fool Sauron and bring the ring right into Mordor? The real reason they succeed is that Sauron cannot conceive that someone having the ring of power would not use it. In his evil, he is incapable of conceiving the kind of goodness and humility and self-sacrifice and obedience that having the ring would destroy it. So Lewis and Tolkien understand that evil is finally blind. It cannot take joy in the gifts of God. It's a powerful scene. That is very good, Lou, in terms of things to consider, many aspects that I had quite. Uh, one of the things that I thought about when I uh, looked at this question was that um, I, I was almost going to cheat and choose the creation of Narnia as a favorite character <laughs> because it's uh, just just so good. But in terms of just uh, adding to uh, any aspect to the what you were just uh, saying, I don't have, but just a side comment about uh, how I'm sure for all of us uh, enjoyed the uh, creation scene of uh, Narnia. Well, now, uh, another question then to consider is something that we've noted to, to some extent already, but we'll revisit it here and see where it goes. And that is, as all authors do, Lewis puts experiences from his real life and adapts them to his stories. Sometimes these adaptations hit close to home, and in this story, the relationship between Diggory and his mother is such an element. Let's consider then part of Diggory's story and how it is the same or different from Lewis. I'll start us out here. Uh, Lou mentioned some things earlier that he can uh, repeat here and, and expound on as, uh, as he wishes, but uh, one of the things, of course, is that in, in Lewis's life, um, that I believe we did note already, is that Lewis's mother did die. However, in this story, uh, Diggory's mom does not. 
but definitely in terms of the frustration and how emotionally upsetting it was, we definitely see that uh, in uh, the character of uh, Diggory, and also noted that Lewis was was working on his autobiography uh, during this time, and so I think as a result of discussing uh, or you know sorting through that with his autobiography, he was able to whatever leftover emotional baggage, so to speak, as we might say t- today, uh, Lewis had to apparently worked through because we see so beautifully how he deals with uh, how he he adapts his story in terms of creating a very uh, excellent character of um, Diggory. It, it is. I mean, Crystal earlier alluded to also one of my very favorite passages in, in all the Chronicles of Narnia, and that is that when Diggory approaches Aslan to ask him, is there anything you can do for my mother? And this is the scene Crystal mentioned. And Aslan looks at him, and Diggory notices that there are these huge tears in his eyes, as if he were even more sorry for Diggory's mother than he was. And Aslan says these beautiful words that then move me to tears as well. He says, you know, I know grief is great. Only you and I know that in this world yet. Let us be good to one another. And there's this incredible connection there. But the the other thing I would add from what was said earlier, that I think is, again, one of the most profound and challenging lines in all of Narnia, comes at the end. And, again, this is the point I mentioned before, where where Aslan actually tells Diggory what would have happened, which never happens anywhere else in Narnia. And what he tells him is what would have happened if he'd stolen the apple and taken it back to his mother. And he tells Diggory something that shocks him, that it would have worked. He would have healed his mother. The magic always works. It has to work, Aslan says. But, and then he says something that is unbelievably mature for a, a child audience or an American audience, which is we're kind of a child audience because we think everything's got to be perfect, right? And he says this, it would have healed her. The magic always works. But a time would have come when you both would have thought that it would have been better if she had died in that illness. And Diggory was very still, and he knew then that there are things that are even worse than death. Now, I've read, um, um, uh, what's his name, Rowan Williams. I just wrote a book on, on, on Narnia, a pretty small book, a pretty good book, and he talked about how a number of modern critics, particularly atheist critics, didn't like that line, thought it was unfair and cruel, but actually, it is very true. <laughs> there are worse things than death. Who knows what kind of terrible bickering or, or nastiness would have come up between mother and son, we don't know, but we're such a death-aversive society. And in Narnia, I mean, you know, Lewis, my gosh, he writes a children's novel called The Last Battle in which all the characters die at the end, and they're happy. I mean, it's the strangest thing. Um, but we need to understand that death is not the worst evil. There are things worse than death. Again, I find that an amazing statement to make in a children's book, but maybe children can understand it better than adults. Uh, but again, uh, you know, Lewis and Diggory come out understanding and trusting Aslan, trusting Christ. I often wonder when, um, having read it again, I often wonder if this was sort of Lewis's way of working out a lot of his childhood frustrations or, you know, because um, if you read in his letters, Lewis mentions that when his mother was having the operation, she had an operation actually in the home at Little Lee on the first floor, and the doctors actually went to the house. 
um, and he's talking to the nurses, and they're talking about surgery, and here's this nine-year-old little boy saying, oh, you, you guys are so dark. You guys are so gloomy. Why are you talking about surgery? So it's almost like he's putting on this armor uh, to sort of shield himself from this inevitable fate of his mother passing away. She actually lived a few months after that surgery, but she passed away later that year. And um, so I, I wonder if this was sort of Lewis's way of, of decades later working it out in fiction, being able, as the author, being able to change the fate of something that he could not change as a little boy. That's a great point, Crystal. It's very powerfully made in the movie versions of Shadowlands, where, again, there, 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 you know, there's a passage in the movie where there's an allusion to the magician's nephew, because, of course, it's his wife, Joy, died of cancer. It's an interesting point. Next, although we've talked about certain aspects, I believe Lou has a, a few other points to make, and that is, how is Diggory tempted, and how does he overcome temptation? Uh, again, we've talked a little bit about, you know, he's, he's got to obey Aslan, but there's one line in the temptation scene that is just brilliant, right? And there's one point where, again, Diggory is, te- even before he meets the witch, he's tempted to take the apple and go, go away with it. But he doesn't do it, partly because there's a bird later identified as a phoenix that looks at him, probably meant to be Aslan, that looks at him. But then Lewis says something so wise. He says, that might have been the reason, but still, there's another reason. I do believe that in those days, things like do not steal were better instilled in young people than they are today. Now that is a powerful, meaningful line, especially from Lewis, who talks so often about what he called the Tao, the universal moral ethical code written in our conscience. That again, because this is taking place around 1900, that again, what he's saying is our modern world has moved away. We no longer understand that there are absolutes of good and evil, right and wrong, and that it is wrong to steal. And later on, we find out, Diggory says, no, I don't think my mother would want me to steal the apple, even if it helped her. She's pretty strict about things like not telling lies and obeying things. So, you know, there is, I mean, you can call that didactic teaching, but it's actually a very powerful insight into the modern world's loss of a a, a law code, of the Ten Commandments, if you will. Next, let's jump ahead somewhat in terms of near the conclusion of The Magician's Nephew. Uh, Aslan establishes a, a hierarchy among the animals and declares Frank and Helen the king and queen of Narnia. From a leadership perspective, which is Crystal's uh, specialty, do you think Frank and Helen were a good choice? Why or why not? Crystal, we'll start with you. Thanks, William. As usual, Lewis addresses some very complex issues of power struggle uh, and leadership issues uh, in in these books. We mentioned in Prince Caspian the complexity of the power struggles between King Miraz and the approaching King Caspian. So there's a lot of great stuff that Lewis packs in there. If you know earlier in the book, um, Uncle Andrew is having a discussion with Diggory and Polly, and he mentions about using guinea pigs to test the rings, and Diggory says, why don't you try it yourself? And Uncle Andrew shoots it down immediately and says, no, no, I'm a scholar. I'm a magician. I don't do that. I, I don't experiment on myself. You know, it's that I'm exempt from that. Uh, and then actually later... Uh, when they are with Jadis, they mention she was discussing the kingdom and how it fell and how she's basically the only queen there 
and she says ours is a high and lonely destiny uh, and mentions how she's exempt from uh, so many things because she's the queen and queens have so much to deal with that common people don't deal with. So here, uh, in the earlier in the book, you see Lewis planting these seeds of, of these people who believe that they are of, of a different substance because they're leaders or because they um, have this power. But when Aslan arrives and sings Narnia into existence, he um, takes a cabbie and his wife and makes them royalty. And what's especially interesting here is that he actually asks them, will you be fair? Will you be kind and just? And they say yes, and they even question their own ability. Frank says, I don't have an education. I don't think I'm the chap for this job. And Aslan says, because of your humility, you will be a great leader. So it's a very interesting turn of events, and and Aslan shows that the best leaders, the ones who have power, the ones who are humble and, like Lewis, inspire and, and do good things with the power that they're given um, so it's, it's a great it's a great way to show two very different sides of leadership. And I think they were a great choice. That's a great answer. You pretty much covered it all. I, the only thing I would add is that, that that happens in several of the other Narnia books, this idea that those who are not sure if they're going to be good leaders often turn out to be the ones that are the best, the idea of, of humility. So that's, that's great. We've got to read your book about leadership, Crystal, someday. Sounds good. Next here is an aspect that we've uh, touched on to some extent, but want to revisit it here, and that is Uncle Andrew is said to be unable to hear Aslan speak. Uh, Lou was noting in terms of the, the song itself, uh, in terms of when I actually uh, did this question, I was thinking of towards the very end here. Uh, and this was reminding me, as Lou noted, in terms of some of the characters in the last battle. While focusing on this story, uh, let's kind of consider the question of why some people are either uh, unable or unwilling to hear the truth. And for me, when I was uh, reading this, and I did read this first in the publication order, because back when I read it, that was what was only uh, available. And so I had yet to read the uh, characters in the last battle, but this did stand out, and it was understood for me much better when I did read the uh, the last battle, and that is, you know, here uh, Uncle Andrew is just totally unable to comprehend, and for me, it's, it stood out as uh, initially as, as kind of odd, and then I understood it better in terms of um, some of the, the other training that I've done in terms of um, psychology, and uh, we truly, uh, and many many times, only hear what we want to hear. But yeah, some people are just unable or unwilling to hear what is uh, being said. I mean, Lewis talks about it. There's a development. At first, they're unwilling. In the end, they become unable. You see, there is a chance, but the more... There's a great line. But see, he can't understand... Uncle Andrew can't understand what Aslan is saying. Because in the beginning, he refuses to believe that these animals can speak. He tries to make himself stupider than he is. And Lewis comments, and I love it, he says, The problem with trying to make yourself stupider than you are, is you very often succeed. And he does succeed. Uh, just just a very quick uh, biblical parallel here. <laughs> One of the things I'm sure both, both you, William and Crystal, probably learned as I did when you were in Sunday school as a kid, that the reason Jesus spoke in parables is so that everybody could understand him. Right? So we always learn. If you actually read the Bible, Jesus says exactly the opposite. He says, I speak in parables so that only those who have eyes will see 
and only those who have ears will hear. And of course, he's quoting Isaiah 6, when the Lord sends Isaiah, and he says, keep speaking to these people, but they won't listen. They're, you know, they've, they've grown deaf and dumb, and their hearts are hard. Lewis is getting at a spiritual truth. Sometimes we refuse to see, we refuse to hear, and if we keep doing that sooner or later, we really can't, because we have blinded ourselves to the truth, and there is no going back, which is kind of scary. I thought that was a great piece of um, advice there, especially to plant it in children's literature, um, that what you see in here depends on where you're standing and what sort of person you are. That's really great, great insight. Next here is a question that Lou submitted for us to discuss, and that is, how are Uncle Andrew and Queen Jadis perfect embodiments of Nietzschean supermen, and how are they also like mad scientists? This will build on a thought that you were sharing earlier. Lou, if you want to make that connecting dots. Let me talk, because this, to me, is, is the part that is the most intellectually rich aspect of Magician's Nephew, and the amazing thing is Lewis is going to take what I'm about to say Lewis is able to convey this in, in language that children can understand. All right. The Nietzschean Superman, you know, the real word is Ubermensch or Overman or Superman, right? The Nietzschean Superman, according to Nietzsche, is someone who rises above middle class morality. Of course, Nietzsche was a, a moral relativist, cultural relativist. He believed that there is no such thing as right and wrong. There's no absolute truth. Those are bourgeois, middle class standards that we put upon ourselves. And so he was calling for an Ubermensch, an overman, who would rise beyond good and evil. That's the title of one of his books. Who would cast off these middle class, we would say Boy Scout morality or something, can cast that off and rise above that to exert his will to power. That's another famous Nietzsche phrase. Someone who has charisma and can do that, right? That is the Nietzschean Superman that he called for. This is why a lot of people blame Hitler, partly on Nietzsche, uh, to rise above. Well, what Lewis exposes, and again, th this is like a sort of, uh, what do you call that, the um, Emperor's New Clothes, where the child sees through what all the adults are, are too proud to see. There's this wonderful scene where, and actually, Crystal, thank you, you've already quoted it, is when Uncle Diggory trying to give a reason why he won't go himself, but he'll manipulate children and kill guinea pigs and stuff, he says, you know, mine is a high and lonely destiny. You know, I'm the one that does these experiments. And it says, for a moment, Diggory was fooled because Uncle Andrew looked so profound and deep when he said it. But then Diggory realized, you're just saying that because you want to be able to do whatever you want to anybody you want to. He just immediately sees through all of this philosophical nonsense about rising beyond good and evil, being, you know, some kind of Superman. And Queen Jadis says the same thing. Ours is a high and lonely destiny. Except Jadis fools you better because she's ten foot tall and dazzlingly beautiful. And it's a little more tricky, is what, is what Lewis says. So Lewis shows us that, that all of this nonsense... You see, let me explain it this way. Lewis shows that Uncle Andrew doesn't even really believe his Nietzschean Superman nonsense. Because when, okay, what happens, people haven't read it, is that Uncle Andrew manipulates the girl Polly into grabbing a ring that takes her away to another world. But he makes sure she doesn't have the return ring. So he uses that to manipulate Diggory to take one going away ring and two return rings to rescue her and bring her back. And that's when Diggory says, why don't you go yourself? And oh, I won't. Okay. When Diggory 
hesitates. Uncle Andrew says to him, I hope my own nephew won't show the white feather. Now, unfortunately, most of my American students don't know what that means. White feather, if, if somebody was, was guilty of cowardice, you would give them a white feather, like the famous Victorian novel, The Four Feathers. They made a lot of movies out of that. Um, and what, 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 what you need to understand is that Uncle Diggory, uh, I'm sorry, Uncle Andrew, who considers himself above middle-class morality, is now appealing to middle-class morality courage to try to get Diggory to do what he wants to do. See, this idea of the Tau, the universal moral code, everybody knows that the universal moral code exists. You know why? Because the universal moral code is the way you expect other people to treat you. Right? So Lewis you know, just shines a light and cuts right through. Finally, just real quickly, they're also like mad scientists. They're similar to uh, Nietzsche and Superman because the mad scientist is someone who thinks that his cause, like defeating death, if you're Dr. Frankenstein, thinks his cause is so noble and profound that he can break all sorts of taboo rules and drink of forbidden knowledge to achieve it. And so Frankenstein, another person, would be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a believer. And in, in that thing, um, everybody knows the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but they may not realize that Dr. Jekyll thinks that he will use this medicine to basically remove our sinful nature, that he can remove it by drugs. And of course, what happens is the evil nature in Mr. Hyde eventually takes over Dr. Jekyll. And in the case of both uh, Queen Jadis and Uncle Andrew, both of them taste of forbidden fruit. Remember, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And what it does is it ends up cutting them off and isolating them from people. You know, Queen Jadis eats one of those apples, and it does make her immortal. But it also makes her white, white as salt, and thus she becomes the white witch. So again, these, these are really profound concepts that I try to explain to my undergraduates. But Lewis sees right through it in simple language and a simple plot that I think a child can understand. Even if they don't understand it intellectually, they've understood it in their heart. And, and I think that's an amazing achievement of, of Magician's Nephew. I think the scene where Jadis and Uncle Andrew actually talk to each other in London, and uh, you know she gets pulled through the through the pool, the wooden the worlds, and um, and she's demanding you know, a carriage, and she's demanding she's calling people minions. Um, it's very interesting because, uh, which you noted, uh, Doctor Marcos, uh, that they both have this concept that that they are better than the working class, and it's very interesting because. Uncle Andrew, when he faces the Queen, he sort of becomes this bumbling idiot. He, he can't really answer the questions. It's sort of like a this whole magic thing is sort of a, a very it's a thin veneer, and it just evaporates you know as soon as they as they meet each other. And it also uh, works with the Queen as well because the Queen realizes that her magic does not work all the way you know in, in the real world. Um, she has she can I think she grows bigger at one point in the book, but she, she can't, um, she's just ordering people around and, and people are, of course you remember, um, Aunt Letty says, get that hussy out of my house. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's because the magic doesn't work. She doesn't have that power. What's really neat is that whenever Jadis is there, Uncle Andrew is frightened and intimidated, but as soon as she's gone, oh, she's a wonderful gal and she loves me <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. So you're right there, there's a self-delusional aspect in there in both of them. I, I like that. 
before getting to the final question, let me remind everyone that you can hear other shows in this mini-series by visiting NarniaCast.com. That is where you can also find direct links to Dr. Marco's books that he mentioned earlier, as well as his site that he will describe at the very end of the show. It's LouMarcos.com. Also, you will find links in the show notes to interviews I did with him on the books that we mentioned earlier. Before saying the final question, let me admit that when we briefly discussed it before starting to record, no one had a definitive answer, but Dr. Marcos was willing to share his thoughts on it. If you happen to know more information, feel free to leave a comment online at NarniaCast.com. And of course, you can make comments about other aspects of the show as well. So the question has to do with the use of rings in The Magician's Nephew. Because Lewis had a chance to read his friends Tolkien's books before they were published, is there any connection between Lewis's use of rings and the fact that a ring is a central part of Tolkien's follow-up Hobbit story? I think there's got to be some connection. There's always a fertile back and forth between those two men. I mean, in um, the Space Trilogy, he even uses some names coming out of the Silmarillion. Um, but what, just one difference that's, that's worth noting, a big difference between Tolkien and Lewis. Tolkien did not like Wagner's ring cycle. He didn't like what Wagner did with the Nibelungen lead and all those old stories. There were times when Tolkien claimed he never read it, which is weird because he also says he didn't like it. Um, but I think it's fair to say that Tolkien, a lot of people read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and think he stole it all from Wagner. What they don't understand is that both Tolkien and Wagner were influenced by the same original source. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, people, they're not thinking. They, they, they listen to the ring cycle, then they read Lord of the Rings and say, there's so many similarities, he must have got it from Wagner. Well, no, they have a common source. Okay, the difference is that Lewis absolutely loved and adored Wagner's ring cycle. It was one of, one of his favorite things. He was very, so, I, I think that rings are Tolkien, but for Lewis, he would be happy to admit the influence of Wagner's ring cycle because he loved that. And in fact, um, uh, you can buy this book real cheap now on Dover Press. The, the great illustrator, Arthur Rackham, did beautiful illustrations for the entire ring cycle of Wagner. And Lewis, when he was young, said, I never coveted any book more than the book of Arthur Rackham's drawing. And of course, for Lewis, it probably would have been 60 bucks. Today, you can buy it for $15 from Dover Press. It's beautiful. Um, so I think there's a little bit of both. There's, there's Wagner that's there, but there is also Tolkien. But again, all of them loved uh, Norse mythology. Uh, I mean, sometimes they loved it as much, if not more, than Greek and Roman mythology. So they're, they're both drinking from the same well, let's put it that way. Well, I'm sorry to say that that is all the time we have to devote to The Magician's Nephew. As noted previously, our purpose was not to explore all the elements in the story, but to get you interested enough to read or reread the story, a very excellent one by C.S. Lewis. Don't forget to check out the websites that we've mentioned for everyone, although I think we probably haven't mentioned Lou Marcos's website. As he closes out and says goodbye, we'll have him briefly mention that. Let me first thank Crystal for being here on the show with us. Always a pleasure, William. All right, and then Lou, as you say goodbye, mention briefly your uh, website. I believe it is LouMarcos, M-A-R-K-O-S dot com. L-O-U-M-A-R-K-O-S dot com. And what's really exciting is if you go on my webpage, I am currently doing a free blog called A to Z 
with C.S. Lewis. And I'm calling it a blog, but actually, you know, each one of the blogs is a 600-word mini-essay on some aspect of Lewis. In other words, Aslan, beauty, courage, all the way on down. But what I also did, with a little help from a friend, is that the entire book, uh, it's called A to Z with C.S. Lewis, is available at, you know, on Kindle from um, uh, Amazon for just 99 cents, uh, if you want to have it. And like I said, it's basically a series of 600-word kind of devotionals on all different aspects of Lewis from A to Z. And then again, thanks, Lou, for being with us today. Hey, thanks, William. I enjoyed uh, speaking with, with Crystal, and uh, we've got a good up-and-coming uh, C.S. Lewis scholar in Crystal there. And I'm glad you're doing this whole series. Uh, there's, we can never learn too much about the Chronicles of Narnia.